This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 23rd of July, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, Scott Morrison under pressure and the continuing marketing games. And it seems that going overseas during a pandemic can be a problem for political leaders, but it depends on which side of the political fence they come from. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, protocol advisor to John Coates. Thanks to all those new supporters on Patreon who signed up last week. And a big thank you for your continuing support. And we'll get some special subscriber content over to you soon. And also, David, the other big news is that the New Politics podcast is in the top 10 of the Australian political podcast. And our audience is the best way of spreading the news. So click, like or comment on the podcast and let other people know about it. Spread the word. Let's try to get to number one. And, you know, not that it's a race or a competition, but the others in the top 10 are The Guardian, The ABC, Michelle Grattan, Peter Van Onselen, Two Grumpy Men, Mark Kenny. Now, they're all very good podcasts, but they've got vast resources available to them. So let's try and make everyone a winner. Let's try and go for number one. Not only is it not a race, I don't hold a hose. It's important to have the smaller voices such as ourselves be heard as well, just for the different perspective. big story across Australia continues to be coronavirus outbreaks with over half the population in some form of lockdown in South Australia, Victoria and New South Wales. It's not like these outbreaks have been caused without reason. There's the slow vaccination rollout and quarantine problems yet to be resolved. There's a great deal of pressure being placed upon the Prime Minister and most of the electorate now believes that Scott Morrison is responsible for these outbreaks and lockdowns. And when the pressure is on, Morrison always goes on to the front foot, and that's what you'd expect from a Prime Minister, but he's been slow to accept responsibility, and there's always a marketing strategy in place to cover over all of the bad news. He's now suggesting that the government has saved over 30,000 lives during this pandemic without any data or analysis to support this figure. The four-stage plan that he announced last month has been forgotten about, and now there's a new plan for pharmacies to administer COVID vaccines six months after the vaccination program commenced. The bungled vaccination program is now becoming a slow burn for the government. You can probably get away with mismanagement and corruption in virtually any other sort of government program, car parks or sports rorts, for example. But the vaccination rollout is the biggest and it's the most critical at this point of time. The mismanagement of COVID-19 was a big factor in the Republicans' loss in the US election earlier this year. Could the mismanagement of COVID-19 be a big factor for Scott Morrison in the next federal election? What we've seen since 2020 is that governments who are seen to have mismanaged the virus lose Trump. A lot of Democrats said if he'd managed the virus properly, Joe Biden wouldn't probably wouldn't have won. We've said this before. We saw Anna Palaszczuk, Stephen Marshall, Peter Gutwine, and Mark McGowan, all of whom were seen to manage the pandemic well, get re-elected. Each election is different, but I should think that this will be a factor in the 
re-electability of the government? I think the bigger issue is that all of those issues related to COVID-19, and that's the vaccination rollout, quarantine issues, that's something that affects everyone in the community, and, and governments can't really hide from those issues. Building car parks in marginal seats for political benefit, well, that doesn't affect everyone in a particular seat. It doesn't affect everyone in a community. Receiving a sports grant through the Sports Rorts program, well, not everyone receives a sports grant either. So corruption, mismanagement and incompetence in those types of activities can be covered up by government. But And that's because only a smaller amount of people are directly affected by those programs. But a slower vaccination rollout that ends up causing lockdowns, well, that affects everyone. So the government cannot hide from these types of problems. And to cover over these problems, that's when we start getting the government spin and media management. So the government in the face of these problems is now pushing that message that, oh, we've saved 30,000 lives. And that's a message that Scott Morrison has been pushing. It's a message that Josh Frydenberg has been pushing as well. And I suspect that that's a message that we'll keep hearing more and more about over the next few weeks. By the same logic, I'm a, I'm a multi-billionaire because I, I could walk in and find billions of dollars of cash on, on my desk. Now, it hasn't happened yet, but it might have. So I'm going back to the bank to extend my credit. They may have saved 30,000 lives, but we know that there's been hundreds of cases because of their slow reaction. And so pulling figures out of the air isn't going to, to help them because any anybody who's good with statistics can easily debunk that figure. And yes, they may have saved 30,000 lives. They may have saved 100,000 lives. It's more likely they've cost livelihoods and lives through their dithering inaction and seeming apathy and seeming incompetence. I'd be very careful if I was them trying to spin it this way. Well, governments always try and spin the data and the material that's placed in front of them to make them seem as good as possible and cover over any bad news. Morrison, yesterday, he was extrapolating all of this data about the vaccination rate and the number of vaccination. He, he was extrapolating the Australian data into US and British populations as well, making it seem like the number of vaccinations was much, much higher than it actually is. And it's, it's quite a sad attempt to spin and mislead in public relations. Some of this probably will be accepted by the electorate, but again, it gets back to how much the pandemic and the vaccination rates are affecting the population. It affects everyone. It's not just affecting a small subset of the, of the electorate. It's, it is applying to everyone in this situation. Yeah, we've all been affected by it. Even if we haven't got it, we're in lockdown. We have to socially distance. It's affected incomes. It's affected social lives. Obviously, the Premier keeps barking on about this. She can't go and see her parents. A lot of people are in the same boat. It's not something that you can hide in an electorate and get the extra 2% needed to win that seat. Uh, it's nationwide. And most people are starting to realise what the state is responsible for and what the federal government is responsible for. And it's not looking good. And in New South Wales, it's not looking good for either. The New South Wales Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, she brought on a bit of Trumpian logic when she mentioned that case numbers are very high because... 
testing numbers are very high. Now, she's not suggesting that testing numbers should be reduced to bring the numbers down, which is exactly what Donald Trump said when numbers were skyrocketing out of control in the US last year. But it's an example of political leaders trying to get good news out of bad situations. And it would just be better if they left all the spin behind and told it exactly as it is and and avoid looking foolish. Now, political leaders do need to be held to account and called out when they're playing their silly political games. Here's Gladys Berejiklian taking pot shots at the other Labor state premiers. I fear for Victoria and I worry about what their government may do. I think everybody's on tender hooks as to whether there will be a third wave and how well Victoria will cope with that. And this is even without having the quarantine system in place that we have. Well, other states have chosen to close their borders very quickly. They've chosen to have lockdowns for prolonged periods very quickly, and that's a matter for them. I don't want a situation in New South Wales that exists in other states where there's a lack of certainty, things are done very quickly, uh, without perhaps the same kind of consideration we give in New South Wales, and that's a matter for other state leaders. Now, every state might have a different way of getting to zero community transmission, and that's a matter for them. But I don't believe keeping your borders closed and inflicting pain and suffering on thousands of people is the way to go. But what's been demonstrated to me is that other states are moving very quickly to shut down their entire economies when they have a couple of cases. Now, in that situation, I don't agree with that position. What's been demonstrated to me is that every state has a different approach to dealing with COVID. And I don't want to see us change the way we're doing things in New South Wales. The Victorian government waited far longer than we did to go into the lockdown situation. But well, in Victoria, Victoria, they still don't have a statewide system for QR codes. They don't. don't they? No, they don't, it's not consistent. I think they announced it only on Thursday. We've had our system in place for months and months. Mm. So there are all the things that she said before this current lockdown. Case numbers are spiralling out of control in Sydney. Today it's at 136. Lockdowns are now being extended to regional New South Wales. And of course we want the numbers in New South Wales to get back to zero. But it's just a reminder for political leaders to stop playing their political games and to do what's right for the community. If New South Wales had locked down earlier and... We are getting a real-life example of this. Melbourne locked down very, very early, and their case numbers are 14 today. New South Wales locked down late by about two weeks. Its numbers are 136. Mm. If the New South Wales government followed health advice rather than political and business advice, we wouldn't be in this predicament today. According to the evidence suggested by everywhere in the world, if they'd locked down when the cases first appeared, we could have got away possibly with a one or two week lockdown. We're now into week three or four and no end in sight. There's talk of hopefully September. There's talk of maybe Christmas. The August talk seems to have quietened down a little bit. I hope it's August because like many people, it's impacted my ability to work. So I I hope it's over as quickly as possible. And we'll have to see how the numbers go over the next week or so. Yesterday was uh, 124 with about 40 to 60 in the community. It might turn around quickly and we hope it does. You hope that the government has learned lessons. They don't seem to want to learn them from other states, but you hope that they do. Victoria's lockdown looks like it might end this week. It was a two-week lockdown. South Australia, I think, will open back up on the coming Monday of this recording, which will make it a shorter lockdown. So 
hopefully, but the Queensland border to New South Wales is shut for four weeks. And this has implications, although they've said you can cross the border for work, medical, compassionate. It's a little bit easier than the hard lockdowns that they've done before. We're in a position that we should never have been in at this time. This should have been last year's experience, and it wasn't. And now we are going through it this year. So the pandemic is continuing and it doesn't look like it's going to end for some time soon. Pandemics continue, but the process of politics never sleeps either. So according to the recent batch of research that's been released over the past week or two, there's news poll, there's resolve and there's essential polling as well. Most of the electorate, according to those polls and that research, now blames Scott Morrison for these lockdowns and for stuffing up the vaccination. And that's despite what he's been spinning and what he's been saying over the past couple of weeks and and it also gets back to one point that we've been making consistently over the past few weeks that it doesn't matter what the media says or what the prime minister says or what any political leader says if that doesn't match up to people's real experience well it's not going to make any difference so there is that issue of morrison being blamed for these lockdowns and that's reflective in some of the two-party polling as well the latest news poll has got the liberal national party coalition at 47 percent the labor party at 53 percent this is landslide material and for morrison it's not looking very good at all he's in negative approval territory which means that the amount of people that disapprove of his leadership is actually higher than the people that approve of his leadership so it's not very good for scott morrison he's not a terribly likable person i guess he he doesn't present well he very quickly goes from fawning bragging to hostility very quickly he doesn't like being held to account and the public has shown that even if they don't like you if you stand up for yourself properly and answer questions they will at least accept that you're trying to do a job it's not his way to enter into a debate he will change the subject he will get belligerent back he will say that he's offended by such ridiculous questions he will do anything to answer the question. Even when he said sorry, he he deflected the sorry into the whole of the government and into the health department, and, and it was everybody but him. And I think people noticed that. There'll be some people who'll say, oh, look, he's apologised. That's a start, at least. Some might say, well, he's apologised and are now waiting for a, the change that should follow an apology. And that's a, as it is. I think that he has burnt a lot of political capital and a lot of credibility on nothing. And when he needs this stuff, it's not there and he, and he can't get it back. So at the moment, it's not looking so good for Scott Morrison, but things can change quite dramatically as well. We just have to remember that if this polling is correct, and there's been a whole lot of issues with polling over the past couple of elections, so we'll just put that aside for the time being because this is the only information that we've got. But even if the polling is 100% accurate, this can all change very quickly. And just as a reminder, Labor had one poll of 63% in two-party preferred voting, and that was around 15 months before the 1998 election. The coalition went on to win that 
election. There were similar figures in 1999. It wasn't as high as 63%. I think it was in the high 50s, 56%, 57% for, for Kim Beasley's Labor at that point of time. 1999 was around 18 months before the 2001 federal election. The coalition went on to, to win that. So it seems like there's an election going to be held within the next eight or nine months. Things can change very quickly. It's just one negative poll for the Liberal National Coalition, but it seems like the pathway has been set in for them at the moment. So the past two months, they've actually been behind in the poll. This is the worst poll that they've had since Scott Morrison became the leader of the Liberal Party. It was bound to have an effect. There are those who say that news poll is really just a weapon used by Murdoch to reward his favourites and to warn those falling out of favour and to punish those who are out of favour. And I guess there's a sense that that's true, but it has a fairly okay methodology in that no pollers have a good methodology at the moment, it seems. No one predicted the last federal election, for example, and That wasn't because of media bias in terms of how they were presenting the polls. That was more because, well, we know now that the government pretty much cheated. But it was also because the methodologies that they've used were out of date. They had restructured them in the 1990s and they'd worked well for 20 years or so, but then it got to the point where they didn't work anymore. This is not a criticism of the polling people either, not really. It was something that I think would have inevitably happened anyway. Well, you add in the last minute pork barreling and you have a factor there that polling couldn't predict. I think that the news poll is really interesting. And I think that there's, from what I can tell from the community, there has been a a fall in support for the government. Whether it's as large as news poll says, we need to have a look at a whole lot of other polls plus an election. But I think it's interesting these type of numbers are starting to come out. The Australian newspaper has been putting out favourable media and press on Anthony Albanese and they praise him for finding the centre ground. They praise him for his alignment with US President Joe Biden, also for the bipartisan support that he's given for action against China without actually specifying what that bipartisan support was and also his support for the stage three tax cuts. Now, these have already been legislated. So, and, and of course, if Labor does form government after the next election, they can always repeal that. But it's, it's going to be a tough task to, to take on. But irrespective of that, it's just been a perceptible difference in the way that the media has been reporting on Anthony Albanese, especially News Corporation. And that goes hand in hand with that latest news poll and also in the change of perspective about the leadership of Scott Morrison as well. Yeah, I can't remember offhand anyway any Prime Minister that has lost the support of News Corp and has continued in the job for long. I mean, some Prime Ministers never had it. <laughs> uh, Julia Gillard never had it. Kevin Rudd didn't really have it. Malcolm Turnbull didn't really have it. Gough Whitlam never had it. Bob Hawke had it. Paul Keating had it. And it's to do with policy and it's to do with There's a whole range of factors it's to do with, but I can't see that a prime minister can not have the support of News Corp and survive long only because a lot of politicians are very scared of their public perception. I don't think it matters that much in the public. News Corp papers and media isn't selling 
as well as it used to. And I think that its influence in the broader public is much reduced. But all politicians get the newspapers every day and they read the newspapers, as they probably should. And they are very, there's there's a certain stripe of politician who takes what is said in the, the mainstream papers very seriously. And if you're a backbencher on a fairly slim margin and you're being told that there's going to be a wipeout because there's been a 4% swing away from the government, you're in a seat of 3% or less. And there's quite a lot of those. This is where the rumblings start to happen. We keep hearing rumours that Frydenberg's doing the numbers, Dutton's doing the numbers, there's phone calls ringing. Whether these are true, I don't know, but it's interesting that they keep spinning around. And I don't think the next Prime Minister will be Josh Frydenberg or Peter Dutton, but stranger things have happened. Well, we now are in the election zone. It could have been called from any time after July the 5th, and the usual rules apply. Morrison will call the election when he thinks that he can win, and if not, he'll hold on for as long as possible. And the final date that the next federal election can be held is May 21st, 2022. And I did mention before that things can change quickly and they can change quite dramatically, but we also have to consider the estimation of the vaccination rollout, which according to some modelling suggests that it could be completed by February 2022, and that's on the most optimistic analysis. But if that does happen, that's one issue off the table for Scott Morrison. And all of these problems that we've been talking about today, all of those issues about the vaccination rollout or the lethargy there or the quarantine issues, that will all be forgotten about. And, you know, no doubt we'll probably see Scott Morrison doing the mission accomplished media stunt if that was ever achieved. He'd probably do that anyway if the vaccination rollout wasn't completed. But if these problems do continue into 2022 and at the next election, the vaccination rollout hasn't happened and there's still lockdowns that are continuing, well, that's the end of Scott Morrison. That's the end of the coalition at the next election. Yeah, all prime ministers come to an end. Good prime ministers tend to last, although over the last 20 years we've seen that that's not necessarily the case anymore. I think Scott Morrison has done very well to last this long, and he, he has been helped by rule change about how you spill a leader. Uh, you need two-thirds of the party to vote in favour of a leadership spill while government is happening. And this was brought in as a copy of Kevin Rudd's Labor uh, reforms. And it was to stop the endless revolving doors. What we've found, though, that if you have a prime minister who's not up to the job, <laughs> these things can work the other way. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, is going overseas during a pandemic a problem for political leaders? Well, it really depends on who it is and which political party they belong to.
Brisbane has been awarded the 2032 Olympic Games and while the celebrations have been muted compared to the usual excitement... The winner is Cindy. There was much criticism about the Premier of Queensland, Anastasia Palaszczuk, attending the formal announcement in Tokyo. Conservative politicians were most unhappy about her attendance, citing her request to limit the numbers of Australian citizens wanting to return during the pandemic and the double standards that applied in this situation. There were also online petitions to revoke her application to either go to Tokyo or to return to Australia. And there were also some claims that she was likely to catch the coronavirus and spread it when she returned to Brisbane. The mainstream media was very, very quick to pounce on this, but they seem to overlook that the Federal Minister for Sport, Richard Colbeck, is also in Tokyo for the Olympic Games. They also overlooked that the Lord Mayor of Brisbane, Adrian Schrinner, is also there. There also weren't too many criticisms from the media when Scott Morrison went to Cornwell a few months ago for the G7 meeting, nor were there any criticisms when the Minister for the Environment, Susan Lay, went overseas to appeal the decision of the UNESCO World Heritage Committee to list the Great Barrier Reef on the in danger list. This is the typical approach of the media. They dump on Labor leaders when they're performing their official duties, but give Conservative politicians a free pass whenever they do the same thing. You'd think that the media would get tired of their obsession with Labor politicians. The media doesn't want Labor in. The media is run by very conservative liberal voters, at least nominally. I, I even think Kerry Stokes might vote One Nation uh, or National, but it seems that his politics push further to the right of the Liberal Party. So, yeah, the media does swings to the Liberal. Now, as private businesses, they're allowed to have whatever political beliefs they like that fit within the laws and regulations of, of Australia. As though private businesses with a responsibility, I think we need to tighten up and enforce media guidelines. And it's, it's funny, Anna Palaszczuk, I'm not sure she should have gone to Tokyo, but... When she was there, she kept everything to a minimum, even politely refusing to go to the opening ceremony, even though uh, John Coates told her that she had to go. When Scott Morrison went to the G7, there was no work for him there. World leaders didn't really want to speak to him. He ended up getting a 20-minute meeting with Joe Biden, which Boris Johnson was in attendance for. He then went on a tour of his ancestral homes in Cornwall. And this is why, while Australians are stranded in the UK trying to get home, it boggles the mind why he thought this would be a good idea, except I think he's stuck in a certain type of marketing model that he can't get out of. It said that uh, the reason the Where the Bloody Hell Are You campaign went forward was because he'd come up with the idea and he refused to let any other option be even discussed. And of course, when it came out, it was a disaster. Less people came to Australia. It didn't even plateau. Less people came. So I'm guessing wherever he learned his marketing from, he doesn't want to let go of those ideas. And of course, the media and the public, they should be calling out the double standards whenever they occur, but it should be applied consistently across all political leadership. Scott Morrison, Richard Colbeck, Adrian Schrinner, 
They're all from the Liberal Party, so they're left alone. Anastasia Palaszczuk, she's from Labor, she's also a woman, so she cops all the abuse from the media. And it, it's also ironic that Channel 7 will greatly benefit from the Olympic Games in Brisbane because they'll hold the broadcast rights, but the way that free-to-wear television is going at the moment, it might be the only event that they're broadcasting in 2032. And... Yeah, we see that it was also the case with Matthias Cormann where it was revealed that the government had spent $380,000 just in airfares to lobby the OECD so that Cormann could become the Secretary-General. And, of course, this was all reported in the media, but there was no depth. It was reported as fact, and hang on, we'll let the public decide whether this is a good idea or not. It was also the case with Susan Lay. She is appealing UNESCO's decision and that was reported as Australia standing up to UNESCO and how dare they put the Great Barrier Reef on the in danger list. Now, normally this should be a positive process where the government should be saying to UNESCO, well, thanks for letting us know about how endangered the Great Barrier Reef is and now we'll do something about it. So we see a totally different style of reporting for Liberal Party members of Parliament, but with leaders like Anastasia Palaszczuk and anyone else on her political spectrum, the media just adds to the pile-up. Yeah, and again, in an age of what we might call hyper-communication, going overseas should be very, very rare, if non-existent. We can get on all manners of software and have meetings fairly well face-to-face. And I know that we've done 400 years of having to travel and even 100 years of being able to get to the other side of the world in remarkably short times. But things matter. There's enough people who know people stranded overseas that this type of thing will hurt. It's like the Katie Hopkins thing for Channel 7 bringing her in for Big Brother. I'm not quite sure what they were thinking except publicity, but it's not a publicity that ultimately yields a benefit. Sure, people talk about it and elements of the community get outraged and they talk about it, but over time that affects the ratings of that show. It affects the ratings of Channel 7, it affects the the image of Channel 7 as not being a very good corporate citizen. It's not the type of thing that you should do lightly. I'm sure that there are probably circumstances where a politician should go personally to a meeting, but none of them have presented themselves, at least as far as I can see now. And, and also with Susan Lay going overseas to UNESCO to lobby against their decision, there's a lot that's going on behind the scenes here. And it is possible that Australia may have the numbers to change that decision, but even if they're not successful in overturning that decision, this is all about the federal government being seen to be offering political support to tourism operators in Queensland. And they, these are the same ones that haven't been offered very much support from the Morrison government. There's a political dimension to this, as there usually is. There's a lot of seats that can fall in Queensland to the Labor Party. And, yeah. and yeah. That's, that's, one, that's one reason why Susan Lay went over there to try and overturn the decision. Even if she's not successful, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's all about sending a message to all of those marginal seats in Queensland that are held by the coalition that we're on your side. We're trying to do the best that we can to support you, yeah. even though they're not really doing that at all. And that also brings up this other schism within the Liberal and, and the National Parties. 
where there more than likely will be a global agreement about carbon management and possibly a carbon tariff as well. But this will cause massive problems within the coalition. So there's Barnaby Joyce and Queensland MPs on, on one side, such as Matt Canavan. And there's the, the more moderate leadership within the Liberal Party. Now, there's not that many within the Liberal Party that are moderates, but this will create major problems for the coalition in the lead up to the next election. Yeah. The whole Barrier Reef thing astounds me because, one, it was the Fraser government who got it listed with World Heritage, and they made a promise to never damage it. Now, I know that was a different government and 40 years ago, but it brings in a lot of tourism. Now, the interesting thing is that Mining and agriculture, and which includes fishing, make up about 5% of the workplace. Tourism makes up over 10% of it. Retail makes up over 10% of it. Accommodation and food services make up 7% of it. Transport adds another 5%. So all of these other related industries that the Barrier Reef could drive are being far more impacted by the needless and senseless destruction of the Barrier Reef. So, yeah, so Suzanne Lay is not helping. So those issues about carbon management, tourism or environmental factors, that's more than likely going to create a schism between the Liberal and the National Parties and various personalities within those two parties. It also could cause problems for Labor, not so much within their personalities, or there's always the chance of Joel Fitzgibbons going solo as far as his perspective on the coal mine and mining industries, but it could cause problems for Labor within the electorate as well. During the time that Scott Morrison was in quarantine, Anthony Albanese did take the opportunity to travel all throughout Queensland. There were many photo opportunities. He did actually go to a Queensland mine, but this was not publicised at all outside of Queensland. There was some promotional and media work in some of those regional areas, but that was all localised. And it's almost like Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party, they need to create this balancing act between inner city seats, including Anthony Albanese's own seat of Grandler, and regional seats in Queensland. So this is going to be a precarious balancing act. I don't think it's going to be as difficult as it is for the coalition, but it's still something that they need to be aware of. got some other political news coming up. In New South Wales, Eddie Obede, his son Moses Obede and Ian McDonald, they've been found guilty of conspiring over a coal licence in 2008. There was a $30 million windfall for the Obede family. It's hard to see how they'll avoid jail, but people like this shouldn't be anywhere near the Labor Party. They shouldn't be anywhere near Parliament. They should be doing something different and they will be sentenced soon but it's also an indication of how slow the wheels of law and and the wheels of justice turn for these kinds of corruption it's 13 years after the event in 2008 before a final decision was made on this 13 years to arrive at a decision over a case of corruption that's a long long time yeah you want it dealt with quickly for all kinds of reasons these Guys' lives have been put on hold. And before I go any further, they should be punished to the fullest extent of the law. They shouldn't be in the Labor Party. They shouldn't ever have been in public life. 
but justice is justice. And I know that legal arguments and, and courts can become quite complex and, and difficult, but 13 years is, we've had, what, two changes of government, three, four changes of government since then in New South Wales. And the laws have changed, and as things recede into the memory, it becomes harder to let the wrongdoers be shown up for the wrongdoers they are, because it's half a lifetime ago, really, in in many ways. Children born in that year are now in high school, to give you a sense of the length of time. Well, it is a complex process, and it does take a long time for these processes to go through, I guess. But it's we talked about these people, they shouldn't be anywhere near the Labor Party. Well, they shouldn't be any, anywhere near any political, any party. Any political yeah. party at all. And it's possibly giving us some pointers about the federal ICAC that was first announced three years ago, but it isn't anywhere near being introduced. And it gives us an understanding of why there is so much resistance from the Liberal and the National parties about this. There's quite a few characters that in my opinion, are quite corrupt. There's Barnaby Joyce, Matt Canavan, Angus Taylor, Dave Sharma, and maybe even Scott Morrison over his Tourism Australia corruption from 2006. That was before he entered Parliament. But all of these people would probably be the first ones to appear in the dock of a newly created federal ICAC and probably be the first ones sent to jail. Now, it might take 13 years, but you know, certainly these people need to be called to account for this. Yeah, it's only fair. They may all well be innocent. The evidence we've seen suggests that they're not, but it needs to be tried fairly in an impartial court of law to see what corruption, if any, there was and how deep it went. Innocent until proven guilty and all of that does apply, but it doesn't look good for them. Let's not mince words. Having said that, if it takes 13 years to get results, then that's what it takes. Although I would rather it's seen done quickly and efficiently and fairly for, for whomever it is. Now, with over half of the Australian population in some form of lockdown and a lot of people not being able to work, there has been discussions about reintroducing the JobKeeper program, which was effective from about March 2020 for about a year up until March this year. But there's also been news about how one particular school in Perth, and that's Hale School, that's Christian Porter's alma mater and Ben Robert Smith as well. Hale School, for the people that don't live in Perth or are not familiar with it, is the equivalent of Knox or King's in Sydney, Scotch or Melbourne Grammar in Melbourne. Uh, they received $7 million in JobKeeper support during 2020. And during that time, they also posted an $8 million surplus. Now, I'm actually pretty good at mathematics, uh, David. So if they received $7 million in JobKeeper support and they posted an $8 million surplus, well, what if they return that $7 million back to the government and they still keep a $1 million surplus? That sounds quite fair to me. And as a comparison, Hale School is just one school in Perth of 1,000 students or thereabouts. As a comparison, the total of all university support across all of Australia was $0. They hate universities. They hate public schools. They hate education. I have said in the past that private secondary education is a massive con. It's the same qualifications for teachers. It's the same curriculum. The much-vaunted network, you only get into that if you're in the right family. So there's absolutely no advantage. Now, I will say that there are circumstances where a private school may be more appropriate for your child. But for a lot of people, going to your local 
public school will get you the same, if not better, benefits and support. The extra money doesn't flow through to the students, or rarely does. Sure, it's nice to have a nice school hall and it's nice to have a sporting, a pony club or what have you, but do you get access to that? The evidence I've seen, you don't. It's, it's all for show and a lot of the money gets shoveled into the board and to the principal's salary and to other parts of education that don't actually make any difference. Had they yeah, take that $7 million, that would probably support 50 people or more probably 500 people on um, JobKeeper. It could go into funding remote public schools in Western Australia, getting them better internet access so they can access more educational stuff. Where that money could have been spent is manifest, yet it went to people who don't need it. So that's one example of JobKeeper gone wrong and if the JobKeeper program is implemented again, well it just needs to be reformed. $4.6 billion of JobKeeper support last year went to businesses that actually increased their turnover and profits during 2020 and $12.5 billion went to businesses whose turnover didn't actually fall to the required level to even qualify for JobKeeper. The Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, he has been saying that the companies that did receive this money, they don't need to pay it back. But compared to something like the robo-debt system, where the government destroyed the lives of many people trying to illegally claw back $700 million for money that wasn't owed, but they're very happy to throw away $17 billion to businesses that didn't need and didn't actually qualify for the JobKeeper support. We spoke about double standards before, but there's quite a few double standards going on here. Oh, for sure. And it's open and blatant, too, which speaks volumes. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.